0: these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator, only oh, okay. people. Okay.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Professor Greenfield. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Joanna Plaisier, and I am accompanied by co-host, Kevin O'Sullivan. And today we're going to be discussing with Professor Greenfield uh, the future of the Supreme Court, the recent election, and how it all weighs on American democracy.
0: Professor Kent Greenfield is a professor of law and Dean's Distinguished Scholar at Boston College Law School. He He is the author of three books, including corporations are people, too, and they should act like it. The Myth of Choice, Personal Responsibility in a World of Limits, and the Failure of Corporate Law, Fundamental Flaws, and Progressive Possibilities. He has also appeared on networks such as CNN, MSNBC, NPR, BBC, Al Jazeera, and Fox. His writings have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Slate, SCOTUS Blog the Boston Globe, the American Prospect, Salon, and The Nation. Professor Greenfield also clerked for Justice David Souter of the United States Supreme Court. It was in private practice at Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C. We are very happy to have him with us today. Professor Kent Greenfield joins us today because he joined other law professors, former deans of law schools, and a law student, in discussing the central question of how to fix the Supreme Court. The New York Times took up a series of articles on October 27th of 2020. Professor Greenfield's article, Create a New Court, is the subject of our conversation today, but there are many proposals offered by the authors in that New York Times series, including term limits, changing the certiorari power that the Supreme Court has, threatening to pack the courts, packing the courts, Expanding the lower federal courts or just keeping it all the same.
1: And we have a couple of quick notes to add concerning recent events prior to our conversation with Professor Greenfield.
0: Joanna and I wanted the listeners to know that our conversation with Professor Greenfield was recorded prior to January 6th, 2020. Obviously, on January 6th, and tragically for our country and for democracy, There was a coup in America. There was an insurrection. Acts of sedition were perpetrated against the American government. It's the first time since the War of 1812 that the Capitol had been invaded. It is the first time in our nation's history that the Confederate flag flew at the seat of government. It's critically important, obviously, for our country, for our nation, for all of our people to discuss the coup but it's also critically important for our conversation with Professor Greenfield that we understand this context because our conversation draws so much upon democracy coming to the table with good faith caring about principles and reasons and norms and extremely sadly as goes our conversation Professor Greenfield proves prescient when he talks about a coup in Chile, when he talks about people believing that somehow the election is fraudulent and stolen. This is what we're talking about. This is scarily where we are at a, in, a, in our nation's history at this point. And as Professor Greenfield said, the damage to our international standing in addition to our domestic harmony is honestly unbelievable. Completely believable when looked at in light of the past four years, completely unbelievable when viewed from the standpoint of our entirety. So this is where we are, Joanna, and this is sadly where we need to begin. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, You are the constitutional expert. You have been on many different programs, many different publications. We'll talk about your most recent in a moment, but you are the man with the answers (laughs) on constitutional law, which everyone is looking to right now. Uh, How, how, how are you viewing it from your landscape? Uh, What, what, what is, what attracts you to this? What got you interested in constitutional law at first?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's, these last few weeks have really um, made me, made me remember, you know, how important this stuff really is. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I enjoy teaching constitutional law so much because I can teach from the front page of the newspaper every day. And I think these days more, that's true more than ever. You know, when you're talking about uh, the presidential election or uh, the Supreme Court confirmation or what the, what the court is going to look like going forward, I mean, these are things that are, uh, impact not just law students, but but every one of us, you know, every U.S. citizen and these are the kinds of things that, that when we all go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah or other holidays, uh, it's, it's, what our, uh, it's what our family members and friends and neighbors ask us about. So what do you think about X? And the X is always, you know, what they think law students care about. And so it's, and that X is like the Supreme Court or does Trump have to concede? Or what about the impeachment? I mean, it's, it's um, in some ways, you know, when I went to law school, uh, constitutional law was the thing that I sort of had m- more ideas about than any other thing. You know, I didn't know much about environmental law or administrative law or tax law, but but I had an intuition about about constitutional law, and I, I I gather that's true for a lot of students when they start out, and and then you know as you as we learn, we it to get our understanding gets more sophisticated, and, and it get, I think it gets more interesting, and so you're right, you know the, the uh, these days, there's so many uh, sort of moving parts in the constitutional conversation. Uh, I, I, you know, I find myself learning stuff all the time, and uh, it's it's one of the things that gives me real um, joy and meaning in in my own work because I'm all, I'm I'm always I'm a student too, and I, and i uh, I hope I hope to be a student for the rest of my life.
0: I love that. I love that perspective, Professor. As, as I alluded to at the beginning, uh, you have been on many different networks, whether it's uh, CNN, WBUR. You've also obviously been on local news networks here in Massachusetts. You're uh, the author of multiple works, A Treatise on the Supreme Court and Supreme Court Practice, uh, The Myth of Choice, another publication. But most recently, you joined uh, a number of other scholars and experts in the field, commentators, in addressing this question of how to fix the Supreme Court. On October 27, 2020, the article came out uh, with various different proposals and solutions as to how to fix that, that exact question. We'll get into your answer, your solution, and uh, how, you, how you feel about the other proposals that were made. But I want to start at the beginning. And I want to take a step back for a moment. Because it seems to me that how we define the problem matters a lot insofar as what we're talking about for a solution. So straightforward. What is the problem that we are trying to address? What exactly is broken?
2: Yeah, uh, Kevin, it's such a great question. and. I- And in some ways, you know, my my piece in the New York Times sort of took as a given that the court is broken. So it's it's a good thing to remind myself that that not everybody agrees, or not everybody um, you know has that same perspective. But here, you know, my my perspective is this: I I think you know the court uh, has long been been a political institution, even from Marbury v. Madison, as the students in my con law one course. learn in you know in day one of that course that you know that even at the time of you know a fight between uh jefferson and and adams and the election of 1800 the court was really a political actor but having said that there it's there's there's an important difference and there's long been an important difference between the court and the other branches and it and it has to be and it has to do with its detachment from from um from the pure political power um, dynamics of the other two branches. And it's it's also like there's something important in my view about the Supreme Court uh, being a, an institution that is based on reasons. Like you don't, you have opinions that are issued that give reasons, they give arguments. And those arguments um, are written down and they're evaluated for years, decades, centuries uh, later. And so I think there's something different in that institution and something that's important to maintain. It's got to, the, that the court and courts generally I think need to be the grown-up in the room in moments where um, democracy is, is most at risk. And so I think that that is that is where we have um, fallen down or the court has fallen down because you know um, I think the Merrick Garland nomination in, in um, uh, uh, in Obama's last year in 2016, after Scalia's death, you know, he waited several weeks, um, and then he nominated Merrick Garland, who was, um, you know, this judge in the D.C. Circuit, who was a moderate judge, who was eminently qualified, who was older. And, you know, I think Obama believed that, you know, that was a reasonable choice, uh, that there would people would come together and be able to compromise on this person. But, you um, but Senate, uh, uh, Senate Leader Mitch McConnell did not even give um, uh, Merrick Garland the courtesy of of hearings, much less a vote, and so th- and they left that that seat vacant for over a year until he was able to to fill it after Trump's um, uh, election uh, with Neil Gorsuch. So I think that that election that selection of of, um, of Neil Gorsuch, in my view, was a, was a sea change in in how the court uh, is, how, the, how the, the political branches deal with the court. It, it, it stopped being something that was subject to reason and was subject just to power. Mitch McConnell says, well, I have the power to stop this, so I'm going to stop it. And even though um, you know, Obama had almost a year left in his term, um, uh, Mitch McConnell was going to stop it. So I think I count that as one stolen seat. Then you have um, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, and Brett Kavanaugh, when he was, when he was um, nominated, he was credibly accused of, of um, uh, sexual assault. Uh, I think Brett Kavanaugh also lied under oath on uh, about various things. I mean, and he, he, I mean basically the first sentence he said in the, in the speech at the White House after his nomination was a lie. He said, I think it was like, uh, thank you, Mr. President. There's no president in our history that has done more research uh, and uh, and more carefully vetted nominees than this president. I mean, like we all know that of all the things that Trump is, a careful decision maker is not one of them. Uh, He's I'm sure he didn't dive deep into Brett Kavanaugh's jurisprudence. So I think Brett Kavanaugh, you know, did not show um, uh, a judicial temperament. I think he. Uh, I think the way the Senate handled his allegations were, was um, was a travesty. And then, you know, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in early October, um, I think it was early October. Maybe even late September. I can't remember the date now. Uh, it became clear. I guess it was late September. Uh, it became clear that that uh, the Mitch McConnell was going to go back on his on his the principle that he articulated four years ago. And is going to push through a nomination, Amy Coney Barrett, faster than any nomination that ever been pushed through, uh, after millions of, of Americans had already voted, uh, and with a really a, a fast track while, while we were in the middle of a pandemic and while he was dragging his feet on um, pandemic relief, you know, and economic relief for the millions of Americans who are hurting because of the uh, economic displacement and the medical displacement caused by the pandemic. So here we are, we have uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who uh, is a, um, it, by her jurisprudence, is about as far from Ruth Bader Ginsburg as one can imagine, being um, sort of pushed through with, with in you know, and, and without the usual rigor and just as a power play, right? Like there's no votes by any Democrat uh, on um, on on her behalf, and this is just—I mean, it's just a power play. So now the um, the 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 uh, the, the court the court is now skewed more than ever before, skewed in the sense that um, we now have very solid blocks, six to three block. Every one of the six that will vote on the more conservative side were appointed by Republicans. Every one of the three that will vote on the more moderate or liberal side was uh, was appointed by Democrats. And so we have a clear political split like we've never had. And we've had splits in the past, but the one thing that's different about the court now is that the coalitions are are very static and uh, party-based. You know, it used to be, you know, um, Byron White was appointed by... um, by Kennedy, but he often voted with, with Republicans. My old boss, David Souter, was appointed by a Republican, but often voted with, uh, with the liberal bloc. So there were shifting coalitions over time, uh, but now that's not the case. The other thing that, that for me, illustrates the, the, the fact that the court is broken and more political and illegitimate than ever before is that 16 out of the last 20 appointments have been made by Republican presidents. 16 out of the last 20. That does not balance. That is not uh, that 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 is not um fair. Um and meanwhile the republican party has won the popular vote once in the last 30 years. So the court has been seized by um the the, the republican party in my view um and the and the me, and the, the Republican Party has basically been a minority party for the last 30 years. The other way to think of the, the other way to um, measure this is that the last time a majority of the court was appointed by a Democratic president was 1969. So that's over 50 years of the court being dominated by Republican appointees. Uh, and, and again, like the, the Republicans have not won the, the popular vote, uh, I think uh, I think six out of the last seven elections. I think if my, if my uh, count is right, have been won. Uh, the popular vote have been has been won by the demo, by the Democrats. So I guess all this is to say that that in my view, and I'm heart sick about it because I love the court. I love studying the court. I think the court is a really important institution, but I think the court is is so sort of heartbreakingly um, broken and. Delegitimized in ways that I've never seen it in my life, and I, and I, I think I'm I'm really so sort of devastated by it and saddened by it, um and get, and I, it's it's hard for me to imagine how it repairs itself in the eyes of the, of Americans without some uh, systemic change. Sorry, I went on and on and on. But that's what you get when you ask a long. <laughs> Please professor. don't
0: apologize. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we that was need great. It. Yeah, we need it. We need it, and I, 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 do want to, I want to explore that just a little bit further. Obviously, you've, you, I, I, think I know where you're going to go with your answer based on that, but just to, just to go maybe a little bit deeper, uh, it, there are a number of schools of thought out there on how to, to view this. In my estimation, w- one of those schools would be, uh, there's, we can do better. We can uh, create. A different system we can make sure there are better rules there are solutions to fix this another is uh, rules principles standards norms values matter and yes of course we should have solutions but at the same time the reason why we have these rules in the first place is for very important reasons to maintain institutional stability throughout and then a third would be realpolitik politique. It's always been about power. It's always been about politics. This is just the rough-and-tumble of it all. And for those people, or perhaps others, I'm sure there are some out there who say, you know what? There's nothing broken. All that's happening is that liberals are saying it's broken because the conservative liberal split is 6-3. And that to them says, hey, it's broken. But in reality, Things are just going exactly as they go. This is exactly how it's supposed to operate. Advise and consent has happened. The president got to nominate individuals. Those nominations were confirmed. Where along that spectrum, along those axes, do you fall?
2: Yeah, well, I I do think, I I think that's an excellent question. I I do think that that there's always an an element of realpolitik in this. you know, as in all politics. But having said that, I think one of the virtues of the Supreme Court and and the confirmation process through the years has been at least um, at, at least at the margins and at the margin and the margins matter here that there's that there's engagements on the substance engagement on the substance. You know, uh, often people talk about the Bork hearings as you know the as uh, back in the early '90s as being the. The moment where things really went off the rails, I, I disagree with that. I mean, I think Bork lost on the substance. Like he he had a view of the Constitution that that was um, you know that was in the minority and was questioned, and people voted on on the merits, and he lost on the merits. So I had no problem with that. You know, and, and in fact, I would have no problem if you know if, if uh, you know Amy Coney Barrett or whomever else answered questions fully and forthrightly and people vote on the merits you know, so but that's not what we have now we have this um, this um, sort of dance at the confirmation uh, um, uh, process where you, you ask a question I refuse to answer it I and I, I, I sort of speak in in and um, you know in, in generalities and then you you um, And and then you answer in generality. and and then we vote the way we were going to vote when we came when we walked into the into the door. That doesn't seem to serve serve anyone. I mean, I do think that, and I think one thing that that the last four years has shown have shown more than any other thing is that norms matter. Um, You know, this president, uh, President Trump, has been a disaster in so many ways. and people talk about his, his undermining of the rule of law, and I think that's ex- that's absolutely one of the things that's going on. But I would, I think also the, his undermining of the rule of norm is, is really important and really damaging to the fabric of democracy and to the judiciary. Like when, um, you know, how he has undermined the independence of, of the Justice Department, I think it uh, could very well be permanently damaging Way he has, uh, we can talk about the, the concession or the lack of thereof. A moment, you know, later as we in the conversation, but I think his behavior over the last couple of weeks, which isn't illegal, is just you know he's just he's just being a petulant child, um, which is no different from the way he's been for the, for four years. But it's the the massive destruction of democratic norms, the undermining of institutions, as you call it, as you say, Kevin. I think has implications, not only domestically, because there are people who will believe him now that he actually won the election, even though no informed person thinks that, um, but also it will damage our, our standing internationally. Can you imagine the Secretary of State um, calling, you know, the, um, a, a head of state in another country that just lost a vote and saying, you know, you should respect democratic institutions, they're going to laugh at us. You know, this, this is a, an aside, but it might be interesting for the listeners. I was, before, the year before I went to law school, I, I traveled through South America for a year. You know, I got a backpack and a journal and, and uh, traveled from country to country. And, and I was, happened to be in Santiago, Chile in 1988. This is showing my age. In 1988, when uh, uh, the, the dictator, Augusto Pinochet, um, allowed a plebiscite, to uh, a vote to determine whether he would stay in power or not. And he thought he would win, and that would sort of legitimize his election, uh, his position as president. Um, so I was there, I, mean, I, like, I heard about the plebiscite coming, I took a, a bus, I was living in Ecuador, I took a bus for about a week to get down to Santiago, and I stayed with a, a family, a, a friend of a friend, a family um, in Santiago, in a working class neighborhood. So I was like embedded, I was embedded. Um, and th- the vote happened, uh, and we, I was sitting around with the family that night, and we could t- and the, the election returns were coming in, and I could tell that pinochet had lost when they switched from the election returns and started running old reruns, like the state-run television it was like, oh, we're not we're not reporting these anymore. And then the next morning, like the city erupted in joy, like thousands and thousands of people, sort of streamed into the streets and started um, uh, spontaneously celebrating, uh, you know, celebrating democracy. And I remember. Um, you know, just people just being joyous, uh, that this that their long nightmare, national nightmare, was coming to an end. Uh, and, the, and then you know, Pinochet ordered the troops to, to come in and, and disperse the crowds, and we all got tear gassed and, and the like. But, um, but the but what I understood happened was that the morning during the middle of the night. Pinochet was going to call off the election after he it looked like he was going to lose, but the ambassador, uh, the United States ambassador, apparently called him and said, "No, you're going to respect the, uh, you're going to respect the election," and, and that uh, and Pinochet, I and mean, that the U.S. had been his ally, and and Pinochet was like, uh, was basically cowed into, uh, into accepting the election by the U.S. ambassador. That is not a phone call that can be made now, by the U- United States ambassador anymore because. You know, I was thinking, uh, you know, because our own president has refused to obey the the election return. So I think the violation. You started by talking about the court, and I ended up talking about uh, Chile, Kevin. But um, uh, uh, and but but I think the the notion is that norms and institutions matter, and I'm I'm very concerned about um, the the erosion, and undermining of those norms that we're experiencing right now in real time.
1: You know, Professor Greenfield, I have to say, there are some striking similarities between the upheaval of a dictator in Chile and what's happening now in the United States, especially considering like after the election week (laughs) finished. Um, And I guess that all that is to say the importance of a concession speech. And I know we are, there are some topics I still would like to touch on with the courts, but I would be interested in knowing your perspective as to why the concession speech is not constitutionally required, but is so fundamental for the peaceful transfer of power.
2: Yeah, you know, it's one, again, it's one of these things that has just become a a norm. And there's so, you know, there's so many things in the constitution that are are, are sort of like constitution adjacent that, that are really governed by norms rather than law. Um, you know the, the fact that we have popular votes for electors that that's that's not dictated by the Constitution at all. That that's up to state legislatures. But state legislatures all uh, all of them have said, well, we're going to do select our electors by popular vote. But you know that could change. But that would be a huge violation of norms. I think the concession speech is one of those things that nobody has thought about. Nobody ever thought about until this year. Like how important it was. You know, little did we know that. Like this, um, this the head of the GSA. There's some this little-known GSA official um, that has to sign the letter that uh, that officially uh, gives transition funds to the to the president-elect's tra- transition team. You know, and now she's refusing to sign that letter because Trump is not Trump is not conceding. And we wouldn't have thought that that would have been important. You know, we wouldn't have thought that. We would need a a law to tell um, uh, to 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 to, uh, to to have the president require the president to concede or issue the letter or what have you uh, until this year. I mean, and and you know this norm of peaceful transfer of power is really a norm that started in, in um, the election of eighteen hundred. Like, uh, John Adams was running for re-election. Um, you know, they had during his administration they had passed the Alien and Sedition Acts that made it. Uh, illegal to criticize the president. I they mean, talk about a, a dictatorial. Um, and Thomas Jefferson was, you know, ran against Adams. Thomas Jefferson was Adams' own vice president. They were running against each other, calling each other names. It was a horrible election. But, you know, when Adams lost, he got in his carriage and rode it back to Quincy. And I don't, he didn't uh, um, attend Jefferson's inauguration. And I probably didn't give a concession speech, but he gave up and he came home. Um, and I think that peaceful transfer of power is is something that's really been very important. And we didn't understand how important it was until this year. Like, and so, you know, I think this goes to show that so much of the constitution uh, and so much of our legal uh, and political framework depends on the good faith of the people involved. Like you have to be, you know, you have to act as if you're not, the only person in the country. And you have to act like the country, um, like, like you that you care about the country. And so and there's no law that can enforce that. You know, if, if Trump is going to be a complete a-hole, um, there's no law other than impeachment that will keep him from, um, that, that will make sure that he acts that way. Now, having said that, you no, know, to the extent that he's broken the law, I mean, they have some concession speech it's not broken the law, but to, to the extent that he's broken the law, he will now become subject to a legal process once he leaves the office. And that, you know, if I were him, and I can't imagine what being in his mind is like, but if I were him, um, I would be quite worried about um, my criminal liability stepping out of that office. So, um, uh, so, so, I, so John, I, I don't, Again, you asked me a question. And I just sort of uh, picked it up, and but I think the concession speech itself is not that important, as it turns out. If if other other public officials do their jobs, like that GSA official, you know uh, whose name I can't remember. Do you remember? Uh, you know who I'm talking about? Um, you know, or, or you know, if Mitch McConnell would would actually do the right thing and say, "Mr. President, you lost." Um, yeah, uh, let's let's um, let's conduct a peaceful transfer of power. Let's remember, like a transition, moving from one administration to the other in two months is a huge task. You know, they've been working. The transition teams begin working in the summer before the election. It's, it's always happens behind the scenes because um, you know nobody wants to be outed as you know. Uh, uh, Trump has already. Uh, working with the uh, transition, uh, transition uh, to a Biden administration. That's not the PR that he either, um, either, either campaign wants. But this is like a multi-month process that uh, is required. And for him to, for Trump to stop it or to obstruct it, uh, I think is, is dangerous.
1: Most definitely agreed. And as you said, I don't think any of us can uh, reasonably expect to know what's going on in Donald Trump's mind. So um, this election has definitely been unique in a multitude of ways. And we're thinking about a lot of things that, like you said, we didn't really need to think about before. Something that I'd like to know, Professor Greenfield, is that if, do you have any implications, at, or sorry, any predictions as to the future implications this election will have? You know, and this you can take any angle you want with this. Um, this could either be save our democracy with uh, electoral or uh, election law in, um, there are some states that have statutes automatically sending out mail-in ballots. And now I feel like as if um, the population has had a bigger experience with uh, mail-in voting. You know, what do you think, uh, could result from this election cycle.
2: Yeah, there's um, such a good question, Joanna, and I, and I think you know there. I could see a number of different things, and much of it depends on what happens in the two runoffs in Georgia, right? If if we have um, essentially a blue Senate, the agenda is drastically different um, from if we have a, um, a red Senate. So I, I, let, let's um, let's let's just talk some about the um, um, what I wish would happen. I mean, I think one of the things that's become clear over the last four years, I, I think we need fundamental and drastic democracy reform. We need, uh, you know, universal uh, voter registration. We need same-day registration. We need the election day to be a be a holiday. We need. Um, uh, uh, we need very um, uh, easy and secure absentee balloting, absentee voting. Uh, we need consistent standards across all 50 states, so that so that um, uh, we know that the standards by which citizens vote are the same, whether you're in Wyoming um, or or uh, Rhode Island. And I so I think democracy reform is, is definitely one. I mean, I do, I also think that um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we had a push over the next generation or so to reform the electoral college. I, mean, I I've become persuaded that the electoral college ought to be abandoned. You know, it is it is an anti democratic uh, vestige of slavery, and it, it if we want to be um, you know. Uh, an anti-racist country. We need to abandon the electoral college. Um, and and I think we, um, and that's gonna take, that's, that's a generational task because uh, a, a constitutional amendment would be required and those things take a long time. But, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some movement toward that. Um, I, I also think that, you know, if we, if we were to have a blue Senate, we would see statehood for Puerto Rico at DC and DC and, um, as being one of the things. I also think we, if we had a blue, blue Senate, we could see some aspect or some type of, of um, judiciary reform, which is sort of the, the trigger to this whole uh, podcast. But the, the other, I mean, and we can come back to that in a moment, but in the absence of a blue Senate, I think what we will see is a further expansion of presidential power. Uh, Trump expanded presidential power quite a bit. Obama had expanded presidential power quite a bit before him. George W. Bush expanded uh, presidential power before Obama. It's a ratchet, and it's a one-way ratchet. Um, and 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 because you know because the legislative branch is so um, uh, so blocked. And so um, uh, locked in, locked in in um, political battles, uh, and you know at, at least if the Senate is, is GOP and the and the, the House is uh, Democratic, there's not going to be a lot of um, uh, common areas for work. So what that means is that 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 vacuum uh, will be will be filled by presidential authority, presidential power. So it's um, you know Biden will. Um, We'll go back into the the Paris Paris uh, Climate Accords. Biden will negotiate uh, treaties. Uh, you know, probably renegotiate the uh, the treaty with Iran, the nuclear treaty with Iran, or the nuclear agreement with Iran, I should say. Um, I, I think there will be uh, regulatory changes based on presidential power. There will be rollbacks of, of Trump's rollbacks of, of environmental reform, environmental um, environmental protections, I should say. So, so I think. Um, probably the most likely outcome of this election of all the things I mentioned is an expansion of presidential power. Now, if you think, you know, the executive is a good thing and expanding executive power, then maybe that's something to applaud. But, you know, I, I do think that um, on balance it would be great if we had a functioning legislative branch uh, and we haven't had one in a while, probably in a decade.
1: So, <laughs> most definitely, I mean, I guess that leads us into, like you said, the trigger of our uh, conversations today. So from what I've heard, just in general since the beginning, um, at you talking about what you find the problems to be with our uh, judiciary now, along with um, you know the different changes that are already underway and soon to become uh, with the other facets of our uh, democracy. Um, I guess my question is to you is do you find that the proposed solution that you brought up in your New York Times article, the constitutional court, if you think that's one of the changes that'll be more generational or if you think it'll be more recent? So
2: um, so this this idea sort of spring, I don't know if this ever happens to the two of you, but I had this idea while, while I was asleep. <laughs> um, I It, it was... Um, I. Uh, I woke, it was uh, just after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and I was thinking about, you know, the implications and it was became clear that um, that Trump was gonna nominate somebody. So I think it was the Thursday before he nominated um, Amy Coney Barrett. And I woke up early in the morning and I and I had, you know, and this idea had popped in my mind that what we should do is sort of take away the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, to to decide constitutional cases're not be able to take away but sort of excise it and move it to a constitutional court uh, with appeal rights limited appeal rights to the Supreme Court but but I started um, so I like would that work and I woke up it was early one morning and you know I got out my like Moores federal practice manuals and I started like uh, looking through all the books and like I think this and, and I started emailing a couple of my my um, my 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 friends, my sort of like uh, judicial process nerds and like um, Article Three nerds, uh, friends of mine, and would this work, would that work? And I started getting like the encouraging responses from people, oh, I never heard that idea, but I think it would work. And, you know, and, and, and it was based on the notion that in Article Three, it says, you know, there's a Supreme Court, should be one Supreme Court and inferior courts as as the Congress may from time to time establish, uh, and then as we learned in Margaret v. Madison*, um, you know, Congress uh, there are limits to Congress's ability to give jurisdiction to the Supreme Court. But the Article III says that the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is subject to exceptions and regulations as Congress shall shall determine. So I started thinking, well, what if we just uh, use that text of Article Three, and you know, uh, I am a textualist uh, to, a certain, to a certain extent. Um, the text matters, and, and say, well, let's let's excise or let's uh, sort of remove the constitutional cases to from the Supreme Court while it's being, you know, for the next twenty years or so, while it can become sort of reestablish itself as a legitimate Supreme Court, and move it to a move it to a lower court. Uh, that's duly created, uh, pursuant to Article III, um, to, to do this. And so, you know, after, over a couple of, over a few days, I started working on this, and then I submitted to the New York Times. Um, and apparently there was a, some of like, it took them several days to figure out whether to take it, take the op-ed, because there was a big fight within the editorial staff, whether it was like too outlandish of an idea, or whether it was, whether it would work or not. And I finally heard back from them, and then apparently they had received several other op-eds around the same time about different ideas. So they decided to package them all into the, into the piece that was released the day after Amy Barrett was, was confirmed. Um, but, but yeah, I, th- I, I think my idea wor- works as a matter of, of um, sort of constitutional frame, framing and constitutional framework. It would not require a constitutional amendment. Uh, it's consistent with Article Three. It would give um, give the uh, it's basically giving the Supreme Court chance to reboot and to uh, re-legitimize itself over the over the next decade or two, and it would, and it would sort of give the American people some reassurance that the, the the most important questions of our day, the constitutional questions, are decided by a court that's um, that that's more legitimate and less polarized. So, I, you know, my idea had had the court be um, basically be, be populated by judges appointed by the by the president, but from a from a, a list suggested by a, a nonpartisan commission. So, you would have, you know, um, uh, you, you would have people across the ideological spectrum on the court, and so it's not not likely to be polarized. So anyway, so that was my idea, and, you know, and I think it's one of those ideas that's probably never really going to be uh, seriously considered in, in, in the short term, not only because it may not be that we have a, have a blue Senate, but also it's like the, the court packing plan, which is much easier to understand and easier to um, sort of get the votes for, is probably going to be the, the one that, that the, the Democrats sort of rally and coalesce behind. So I, I don't anticipate my idea getting um, much, many adherence, but, but you know, who knows, you know, I, I think one of the things that, I, that I've learned in this business uh, of being a law professor, which I love, is that ideas um, have their own life, you know, and my job is to, is to give them birth and give them some um, uh, nurturing, um, but then they, you know, th- then they leave my my um, my care and go out into the world, and other other people can can uh, take them up. And there have been times when, um, yeah, I, you know, I had a, was working on an idea or a piece, you know, uh, for years and years, and then finally it gets uh, taken up by somebody else, and that person runs with it. And you know, it's it's like these musicians who, you know, work. For 20 years to become an overnight su- success, you you never you never know when an idea uh, will develop uh, some adherence, and, and I may be long gone before this idea does. Just like any of my other ideas, at least that's the way I I make myself feel better when I have an idea that nobody seems to um, uh, to, to pay any attention to. It's like oh you know it's not for it's you know I I, I make myself feel better by saying oh it's not for this generation it's for it's it's for the future. Um, but who, who knows whether that's true. It's, it, may, it may be up to people like you to, to put it into place when one of you is president um, in 20 years.
1: You know, Professor Greenfield, sometimes you have these kind of ideas. You just got to let the people stew on it for a little bit. You got to let them think on it. It's not for this generation. Give them some time. They'll they'll come around to it. And uh, considering yeah, right, right, the, the disputed right. nature of, um, of your proposition. We of course have a couple questions, but before I throw it off to Kevin for that, I do want to say props for you for having such an eloquent um, early morning idea. You know, I'll do the same thing where I'll wake up at 3 a.m. I think I'll make the most groundbreaking uh, discovery and I'll wake up and I'll say something like orange pancakes. So definitely good on you for that.
2: Well, it's it's. I'm not going to say this happens every day. Uh, I, I think uh, you, usually usually it's like uh, if I can get up, let the dog out, uh, make my coffee. I consider it a good morning.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm feeling the way Joanne is feeling. I, I think this your idea should get even more credence because it came to you in a dream. That might be a sign <laughs> from on high. We got to step up and do something here right now.
2: Right. Although I do, you know, I I, I um. You guys have probably read this stuff too. Like, um, you know, people, uh, mathematicians have solved math problems during their sleep. You know, it's like if you, if you're you're trying to wrestle with something that you can't figure out, uh, sometimes the best solution is to sleep. Um, and then your mind keeps working on it. Uh, Absolutely right. That that was, that was how this one came up. That was how this one came out.
0: Absolutely right. And I think what you said about letting the idea have a life of its own and, and allowing that to take place, I think, is crucial for the thrust of what we're trying to do here. It's important that there's a conversation. It's important that there is at least some movement towards understanding that something different may need to happen. There has to be certain options on the table to even allow that to go forward. So it's, it's very important to really leave no stone unturned and to explore these things. Um, and I guess in that regard, Taking a page from Joe Biden, don't don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. How do you feel your idea stacks up against the alternatives? In that piece by the New York Times, How to Fix the Supreme Court, other law school professors and former deans of law schools and a law school student discuss term limits, packing the court, threaten to pack the court, expand uh, the lower courts. There's many different options. How do you feel that yours either fits in, uh, substitutes for or complements those other ideas?
2: Yeah, I, um, I, I think, Kevin, you're right that, that, my, th- that these ideas are ideas that I, I think I, I uh, feel differently about than I would have even six months ago, right? Um, because they've percolated and been cultivated like I, you know, even in my piece, I, there, I stated some hesitation about packing the court um, because I think there's a danger of it sort of being, a, you know, having a ratcheting effect that whoever gets the, the president and presidency and the Senate in the future will keep doing it. But I, I do, th- I, I think on balance, you know, if you're not going to pick my idea, I, I have become a supporter of, of court packing. And I don't think court packing is the right, right word. It's. Adding justices to the Supreme Court, you know, the, the um, because the court, I mean, the court has has gone up and down in the number of, of justices that are on it. Congress has changed that for um, um, political reasons in the past, and I think uh, adding, um, you know, two or four justices would actually do a would would make the make the court better. You know, and I can name. Four people I would put on the court right now, you know, who I think would would um, make the court a lot better. I also think the um, the idea of packing the lower courts or adding judges to the lower courts, Leah Littman's idea uh, in the Times, is really important. You know, um, I think many of the lower courts, the courts of appeals, are understaffed uh, by judges. There are a lot of cases that take a long time to get to get through the court system. I think Trump has done a um, um, uh, done a good job from his perspective of of packing the courts, uh, uh, and and I think what we one of the ways to both decrease the power of the Supreme Court and ameliorate some of the harms that Trump has imposed on the judiciary is to just expand lower courts. I mean, one of the reasons the Supreme Court doesn't um, he only hears you know seventy or eighty cases a year. It's much more important for most uh, Americans to have um, uh, a, a court of appeals in their circuit, in their um, in, in their circuit that, that is fair and is uh, legitimate and is not polarized than it is for the for the Supreme Court to have be, be in that situation. So I think um, those ideas are um, important. I I think you know term limits is another idea that I've sort of been very skeptical of over time. But I'm now much more open to, you know, my um, my former boss was on the court for 19 years, and you know, and and I think that that he always thought that that was about the right amount of time, um, and I can see that. Of course, I've been I've been a professor now for 25 years, and I certainly don't want to give up my spot as a professor. So, uh, I you know I, I can I can see why you know. If you got a if you got a lifetime apartment and anything, like you may want to just um, um, uh, uh, keep that job to put for it as long as as long as you can. Um, but I, you know, we all we all see some risk in that. You know, and I think uh, Justice Ginsburg was an amazing person, an amazing justice. Um, but you know, she she sort of uh, rolled the dice. In a sense, um, and she ended up uh, losing that bet because if she, because the things that she cared the most about are now at risk because she decided to not resign when she had the chance when Obama was president, uh, and she took it. She, she took a chance, um, and unfortunately, she she lost that bet. And so, if you um, so, you know, term limits would, would ameliorate that those kinds of political um, uh, choices that those justices have to make.
0: I, I think Joanne might you, join me. This,
2: Kevin, can, can, I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say, which, which ones of those ideas did you guys like
0: the most? Joanne, if you have any thoughts, I'm, I'm happy for you to, to go first. I don't, I don't want to take up too much here.
1: No, don't worry about it. (laughs) Honestly, I'm sitting here soaking it all in. And clearly, honestly, I feel like the solution that might be most present in our time or most viable, I guess, um, considering the breakdown of what the legislature might be would be term limits. So I agree with you, Professor Greenfield. Like, I see the pros and cons, but at the same time, you know, if there were term limits already imposed uh prior to justice stinsberg's passing i don't we might be in a different situation so personally i find that to be the most present uh solution what about you kevin
0: i I, am actually on the same page i i think it and like you said professor it's never something that i really had given much thought to or would even be uh persuaded by most likely in a in a different time in a different world but given where we uh Given what has happened, I am more inclined than ever towards that. Um, but even so, I, I don't think it's without its uh, its its practicality concerns and without um, a certain constraint on. Well, wait a minute. What if what if, in some ideal world, we got a great justice who we simply just don't want to lose to a term limit? In a way, I think. Uh, mandatory retirement ages then becomes interesting, but I'm, I'm very cautious about becoming a, uh, an ageist method, to, to be honest. Uh, I, I think that there's, I have some concerns there. So I, I, I think, I think and, and this is really what I wanted to get into with you, Professor. I have to say, uh, what, what I was going to say was, I think maybe Joanna will join me in saying that it's kind of fun to be on this side being able to ask the professor some Socratic method questions. It's nice to not have be facing the cold calls ourselves. Uh, But one one thing that interests me is in in looking at your idea and trying to fully understand all the contours and nuances of it, you alluded to, obviously, a a practicality concern. To what degree will this ever be taken up and someone will will attempt to create a a new court? Two possible questions that I have uh, following from that are, is there a concern over how exactly this shifts the problems that we're facing already to just a new venue? That still all the controversy, all the problem, all the great drama of who's deciding what and how are they deciding it is then just transferred to a different court. So sure, the Supreme Court isn't dealing with these questions, but where we really care, the most important questions, are now just being decided in a different venue, where all of our problems persist. They're just taking place at a new address. Do you, do you find any credence or or anything to that? Any authority to them?
2: Yeah, you know, no, I think that's I think that's a fair worry, Kevin. And in in some ways, it it. Turns on the method of appointment, because if the if the appointment is um, the same kind of, at least it would lead to the same kind of polarization um, and static sort of voting blocks. Then I think that I think uh, you're right. But you know, my idea that then sort of I try to respond to that by saying that well, I think. What we should do is to have you know staggered terms, so you sort of bring in the term limit idea. The term limit would be term limits would be much shorter. Um, my idea was to have judges on other circuits come and basically sit by designation for a period of years, you know, it's staggered terms, so that each president gets you know a couple new um, appointments every every term. Um, those appointments are selected from a from a slate that of uh, of a bipartisan commission that um, that is that is uh, uh, charged with coming up with a with a with a group of names from the lower courts that are fair-minded jurists, you know that that are careful and have uh, really good reputations. So I think that you know there's um, I think the the president would have to um, be the appointer. Pursuant to the appointment clause, but I think there's ways to um, cabin and sort of channel the president's discretion so that you create a court that has uh, legitimacy. I mean, you know, the other thing to say is what, what that I didn't say before is that um, constitutional courts are very common around the world. You know, you have something like uh, three dozen other countries with constitutional courts in various ways: South Africa, Germany, France, and so. You know, this is, um, you know, it's quite. You know, common for uh, the constitutional questions to be in a in a tribunal that has some expertise on on those on those grounds. You know, it also you know, would let everybody sort of exhale a little bit and stop worrying so much that um, you know that that every that every, each new justice is going to you know be the death of Roe or um, is going to undermine uh, equal protection in other ways or give the president too much power. So I I think in a way it, it sort of allows for the sort of decompression, lets us all exhale a little bit. And the the Supreme court can still decide its statutory and regulatory cases, uh, which are also very, very important. Just those, you know, the, if the, if if the court gets that wrong, Congress can step in. Um, but if the, if the court gets the, the constitution wrong, it's, it, you know, it's often wrong for a generation or more. I mean, it took, um, you know, it, it took uh, over 50 years for Plessy to be overturned, for example.
0: One, one final critique that, that I would like to get your thoughts on is uh, the Supreme Court, uh, by its nature, is very concerned with having the last word, with maintaining its prominence, authority, uh, prestige, to what degree do you think the court would then react if, in fact, a constitutional court were created? To what degree would the Supreme Court react by saying, we'll start deciding things on non-constitutional grounds? We'll basically do an end around procedurally to ensure that our voice isn't going to be at all lessened or decreased. Yeah. We'll just make sure it never gets to the constitutional court. Yeah.
2: No, uh, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that's a worry. Um, one way to respond, uh, is to, you know, what there, there's a constitutional question and a political question. The constitutional question is whether the creation of this court, uh, is a violation of, of article three. And article three says there shall be one Supreme Court. And some, one might say, uh, one, one possible constitutional objection to my, to my idea is you are undermining the Supreme Court as the one Supreme Court. And, and, and if you if, if you basically stripped the Supreme Court's, excuse me jurisdiction completely of all constitutional cases, then um, you know then that undermines the textual requirement that there be a one Supreme Court rather than two. Uh, I answered that in the piece by saying that there is you know the court can still grant cert from um, uh, of of matters decided by the by the by the constitutional court. But only if with a supermajority vote. I mean, cert—the uh, the right now current practice—and it's only a norm. It's not—it's not, a, it's not a law. The current practice is that four justices can vote to grant cert, and then the court hears a case. But you could adjust that uh, statutorily and say, as I suggested, you know, six uh, or seven out of ten, out of nine, sorry. Um, as a law professor, I should know how many justices are on the court. Um, you know, that, that, you know, seven out of nine, you need to vote, um, uh, to grant cert. Now, I think you're, Kevin, you're, you I think the more profound question is a political one. You know, is there a way that the court could sort of shoehorn, um, a, a you know, an objection, a political objection into constitutional rhetoric, constitutional phraseology, um, and undermine the authority of a constitutional court if it were created. I think that's you know I think that's a uh, that's a a real concern. The court has has created new whole doctrines um, that didn't exist before in order to reach the outcome it, it wants. Like I'm thinking about Shelby County, uh, where it um, where it struck down you know a portion of the Voting Rights Act by talking about you know. Um, Equal sovereignty of the various states, which is a doctrine that had not existed t- until that case, um, and so you know you, you could imagine a court um, coming up with an, an extra constitutional reason, but cloaking it in constitutional rhetoric. You know, and there's nothing we can do about that, right? Like, like um, it's sort of it's sort of like um, uh, you know, well, before I say the analogy, let me say what I what what I want to say is that. We can't not push ideas because we think people will respond to it illegally. That 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 cannot be. You know, oh, we get. You know, that the, the Supreme Court won't go for this, and we and they'll come up with some reason. Well, they come up with some reason. Well, you know, we'll react to at that point. But we can't we can internalize that illegality or that illegitimacy and have us stop from acting. And I think you know, that, I think that that's sort of a broader point and something that. Uh, maybe I sh- we should close on because I think that's a broader point for law professors, for law students and others, especially in this time, when the, the reason for and basis for cynicism is so great. When we look around ourselves, uh, look around the world, look around the law school, look around the uh, legal academy, and look around um, uh, the judiciary and, and see pl- politics cloaked as law and we know that there's differences. Uh, and I think it's a failure um, to equate the two. I think principle and reason matters and should matter um, even if it doesn't in the moment. And we, can, we should aspire to care about ideas. We should aspire to care about principles we should as, you know, uh, aspire to, to care about giving reasons for, and rationales for, for what we believe. And we should not internalize the cynicism. I mean, I think it's important as lawyers to know enough about who, who we're trying to persuade in order to speak in a way that, that, that will matter to them. But I think as lawyers and legal scholars and law students, Uh, and political activists, uh, I I think um, we cannot be limited by assuming that it's all just power. Uh, It is somewhat power, but it's also um, reason and principle. And so, um, uh, and I think that that matters. And we should act as if it matters.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Greenfield. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been an excellent conversation. A professor of Law and Dean's Distinguished Scholar, you've been a great help to us and thank you for helping us explore this most important issue.
1: It was a pleasure, Professor Greenfield. Thank you for your time yeah, my, today. It was, my,
2: it was my pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: So, Kevin, we spoke to Professor Greenfield and we talked about a variety of things, and I think there are some things that we should still have to discuss, at least between each other. Um, How do you think the conversation went with Professor Greenfield? What are any lingering thoughts you have from that conversation?
0: I I thought it was great. I think we're very fortunate to have Professor Greenfield join us. He's obviously in high demand all the time, but especially now. I I think the, the biggest thing for me was what Professor Greenfield said at the beginning, that truly, the real solution to any of the problems that we discussed today is this acting in good faith, is this commitment to belief in and acting on principles and reasons, and that putting country before self, country before person, is necessary to well functioning and a good system. And I think for me, Hearing Professor Greenfield say that was very reassuring and, and also the key to it all. For me, I, 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 when I look at all these issues, I think the true issue doesn't actually emanate from the Supreme Court. I, I think it does emanate, at least insofar as Supreme Court nomination and confirmation is concerned, in the Senate. And that it's really the Senate's rules and how they have been used that affects all the rest of, of the issues that, that we've been facing and I think and I don't know the answer fully but something to think about is how to get the Senate to both advocate for and produce their own rules that will that will lead to best results but also given that the Senate has either proved unwilling or incapable of that, how do we get the how do we have an ability to tell the Senate? What rules it has to operate by, and I think that's really that's really where everything needs that for me is the intersection. How about you what, what What would you say is the the culmination the conclusion of it all?
1: you know I have to agree with you, Kevin, you know in what you said about the Senate, and especially considering you know the good faith um, my one ls and contracts will know that that's an implied term you don 't really have to say that in contracts it's just there and I think the major conclusion for me after the discussion with uh, Professor Greenfield is it's not really a conclusion, but more so a question of how we got here now. Um, Considering that the American experiment, this has all been happening for 200 years. Why is it in this point in time that we're questioning or seeing an issue with what our system has in play now? And I really feel like that can be answered either with the norms that have been established that have just been ignored at this point in time, um, or is it the environment surrounding us now? You know, we are in a, hopefully, building towards a more equivalent, you know, um, value-based society um, in our country. But it still leaves that big question of like, why we got here? We know how we're gonna hopefully address it, but it's, it's definitely a really big question um, something that was especially striking to me is just the similarities between uh, a dictatorship coup in Chile that Professor Greenfield saw and now. So how we got here is definitely going to keep me up at night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you asked, you asked the right question, Joanne, and that's, and that's something too. You, know, you look at the vote counts for Supreme Court nominees and what vote by which they were confirmed. And you, you look at people who now we view as one of the central legal figures of their respective causes, and yet they were confirmed by overwhelming majorities. RBG, Justice Ginsburg, nominated, uh, confirmed, I should say, 96 to three in 1993. Justice Breyer, 87 to nine in 1994. Justice Scalia, 98 to nothing in 1986. Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, ninety seven zero you bring up a right question you look just a little bit down the line from that president obama justice kagan sixty three thirty seven justice sotomayor sixty eight thirty one why is why was that an opportunity a possibility not too long ago and no doubt i it's not as if it only points in one direction at the beginning of our country there were more contentious votes in terms of pure numbers. Certainly, Justice Alito was confirmed 58-42, Justice Thomas 52-48. There's been close, tight, contentious vote counts. However, we were far cry from those overwhelming majorities. And you ask this question, why now? What is it about now? And that's where I think here again, what we're looking at with the Supreme Court is in endemic to the whole system. The The, the divide and, and this is the answer that Professor Greenfield said, and, and you just alluded to, norms. There's something to be said beyond the law, beyond what we can codify in a rule, beyond what we can promulgate in legislation. There's something to just norms. This is how we do it, because this is how we do it, because there's values and principles behind a thought, a certain practice, a standard. And to me, I think that's where we need to reclaim. It's the most difficult thing to do. It's the hardest way to go about it, but that is also where the truth lies and where the path lies. There have to be other options, too. That's why this New York Times article exists, right? That's, that's the hardest way to do it. There has to be other avenues, and we have to pursue as many of them as we can, but all options have to be on the table. All points of the conversation have to be brought up. We have to have the most comprehensive approach that we could possibly have to solving this. So here's one step in that direction. You
1: know, that it's, is it's,
0: true the new york times that's, those are some good articles for all listeners for those who are interested great place to start but we have to begin as an american public to have these conversations so happy to be a part of it and as always happy to be a part of it with you joanna we're just getting started <laughs> you
1: too kevin it was definitely a pleasure to to speak with you today We'd also like to let members of the BC law community know that our very own Kent Greedfield will be a part of a panel featuring Leah Littman of University of Michigan Law School and Aaron Tang of the UC Davis School of Law, who are both contributors to the op-ed article we discussed earlier in our conversation. They'll They'll be on a panel on Wednesday, January 27th at 12, discussing the reinvigoration of American democracy through court reform. So they'll be discussing a lot of the topics that we touched on in our conversation with Professor Greenfield, along with the topics they touched on in their op-ed article. So we hope you can tune in.
0: Thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for listening to Just Law. We have many more interviews ahead, and this is exactly what we're trying to do, trying to be a part of the solution, trying to get the conversation started. So thank you very much, and we'll see you here back again very soon. Thank you.